Senior bridge officers, report for duty. Commander, set a new course. There's a podcast in that nebula. Hello and welcome to a new podcast uh, called There's a Podcast in That Nebula, uh, which, if you can't guess from the title, is a podcast all about Star Trek Voyager. Um, so you have myself, Andrew Dickinson, uh, at oddmont 84 on Twitter, and joining me is uh, my co-host, and uh, I think the, the creator of the podcast, really, um, is uh, Mike Phelan. Mike, what's your, what, what, first off, what's your Twitter handle? And uh, kind of let us know why you wanted to do a podcast all about Star Trek Voyager. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, my Twitter handle is at space underscore turnip, which is a Star Trek themed uh, Twitter handle, which I will go on to at some point in, our, in a future episode, probably. <laughs> Um, so what I want to start the series, very simple, uh, I love Voyager, I love Star Trek, um, both you and myself are involved in the Dreamcast scene of, mm-hmm. uh, of retro games, we have our own podcasts, and uh, I think we both have a, a shared love of Star Trek, and I think mm. Voyager is a series which is an interesting one, because it doesn't really get necessarily the love that it, it, it should get, it was the last of the main uh, mid-90s ones, mm-hmm. and I think some people have sort of dismissed it as being uh, the weaker of the three, um, and I think it's, it's very much not, and I think that's hopefully what we're going to show people in the course of this these uh, many episodes of this series. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you're definitely right in that we both share a love of this particular Star Trek show. Um, and guys, I've I've discussed with you, I've I've never really watched Deep Space Nine apart from the mm. last season for some reason. Um, and I do love the Next Generation, but there was something about Voyager um, that always kind of. I enjoyed more for some reason. Um, perhaps the time it came out, or I don't know. But yeah. Do the Voyager. Um, what kind of um, just just so people know, what's your background with Star Trek, then, Mike? What's uh, you know, what have you watched? What have you not watched? Have you watched it all? <laughs> so um, I've I've watched it all. I've mm-hmm. I've been watching Star Trek since I was probably about seven or eight, I think. Uh, I used to watch it on BBC Two uh, in the UK, and mm. we used to have it on probably on on I think it's one day a week. We had the original series on. Um, my brother was a massive Star Trek fan, still is a massive Star Trek fan, um, and he sort of introduced me to the original series, so I was, I was watching to that at a young age, and I, I watched Next Generation, uh, DS9 and Voyager as they came out, either on BBC or Sky. Um, sort of skipped over Enterprise a little bit, because I, I watched a few episodes and I didn't really like it, mainly down to the, the theme music, and mm. then um, I came back to Enterprise afterwards, um, but also the, the latest ones, Discovery and Picard. Um, I have seen and I've seen the films obviously in cinema um, and at mm. home um, and I've even seen the animated series and uh, far too many fan films uh, to count <laughs> over the years as well there's been quite a lot of fan films like what is it Renegade I think I have that but I haven't watched it in full there's just loads of different ones that there's I loads yeah. yeah I think it's gone off a little bit now since they've had the new series come out I think it's maybe gone off a little bit so there's not mm. quite as many fan projects but uh, it's definitely something which is, is big obviously we've got Lower Decks coming out soon as well the animated series nice. uh, rumours about a, a Seven of Nine series coming as well it's a, it's a very interesting time to be a Star Trek fan it is absolutely. There's lots going on with the series, isn't there? The, the, with the movies, the, the whole rumor of Quentin Tarantino perhaps directing one. Of course, although, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of gone a little bit quiet. Um, but yeah, so basically, you, you're Star Trek through and through. <laughs> Every oh, yeah. single yeah. piece of yeah. content, it sounds like you've devoured in some form I, or another. I wanted to wear. I wanted to wear a Star uniform for my wedding. My wife didn't allow me to. I was very disappointed. Wow. Oh, I'm guessing you've got one in the wardrobe, though. Yeah. I I couldn't possibly. Uh, <laughs> 
confirm or deny that rumour, Andrew. <laughs> the big question uh, is, is it one of the uh, unisex Star Trek The Next Generation uniforms, or is it one of the more modern ones? Well, you see, it could be one of the one of the ones from the first series of Next Generation, one of the, the male ones with a short skirt. I find that quite yes. interesting. Yeah, yeah quite all right. Um, so, yeah, um, that's good. I'm, 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 if I throw you, off, throw you off a little bit there, Andrew. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess um, my background isn't quite as... Uh, I haven't watched all of them, so I've never watched the original series. Well, I've watched probably bits here and there because it's on telly, you know, here and there. Of course. I was never really into it. It felt too old for me at the time. Um, you know, in the, in, the, in the good old 90s, being from the 60s, it felt like too old. And that was back when I was a teenager and you had to watch all the new things, all the good new things. Old things were just bad. Um, so I think I picked up, I think, early 90s when... Next Generation had kind of been a few... It was a few series in, a few seasons in. Yeah. Um, but then somehow I managed to completely miss Deep Space Nine um, and then didn't pick back up until Voyager started. And I watched Voyager from the first time it broadcast until it ended um, on TV. Um, and then I've seen all of the Generation film, the Next Generation films um, and the newer films. But I've never seen any of the original Star Trek films, which I probably should because I hear okay. things about them. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, they're an odd, they're an odd mix of. Uh, there's a couple of good ones, a couple of ones which uh, we don't talk about. Is is one of the ones you don't talk about the one with the whale? No, Voyage Home's a good film. Um, it's, okay. an inter- it's a bit of a comedic film. The one we don't talk about is Five Final Frontier, um, summed up by that wonderful phrase, "What does God need with a starship?" Which was pretty right. much sums up the film in my mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'm sure at some point, if uh, if this podcast as well, I'm sure. We'll either touch on those things or those um, entries, or we may even kind of record more podcasts about all the different facets yeah. of Star Trek. Perhaps we'll see. Um, but Voyager itself is a very large subject. It's uh, seven seasons long. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many episodes. I think um, IMDb would tell me, but I've put my phone onto uh, airplane mode so I don't disturb myself. 170 ish. 170 ish, I believe, isn't it? Yeah. So we've got a fair few episodes to get through, and um, so the format we're looking at is to look at two episodes each time, each episode, each podcast episode, we'll look at two Star Trek Voyager episodes. Um, And the whole point of the podcast, I guess, is to... um, it's to rewatch the show um, and to just go through it as as it is now. Um, you know, we're in 2020. Uh, it's, it's been, goodness, how long since it's been off air? It must be about... Uh, 18, 19 years so it, since it went off air, possibly. It's a long time. It's, it's the anniversary this year, I believe, isn't it, for Voyager? Or was it last year, the 25th anniversary, wasn't it? Uh, been that long already. So it's oh, it started kind of late started. 90s. Since it? it started, so yeah, since it started. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been a long time. Um, and yeah, because it's such a, you know, like you said, Mike, it's such a... Uh, it's it's kind of it's not the black sheep, but it's it's certainly one it's the, one of the Star Trek shows that it's the lost sheep. The lost the sheep. sheep. Yes, exactly. I think I think you're right. I think you're right, Andrew. I think uh, as well. I think it's quite important. Is it's 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 very much of its time. Um, mm. we, we were speaking a little bit about other series from that sort of era that we liked, uh, namely mm-hmm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I believe we both mentioned. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, it's it's that sort of late nineties. Um, TV was very interesting. You know, this is a mm. TV series with a female lead, which wasn't that that common at the time. Um, it touched on some subjects that still now aren't quite so much as much in in, in the media as we would like them to be. So it's mm. very interesting how a lot of the TV in the late 1990s was sort of almost revolutionary in some ways. 
And yeah. I think that we, we're going back to that now and TV is starting to, to catch up again. But it's Voyager was one of the last sort of series of well not one of the last, that's not that's not true, but late nineties television was very much the, the last sort of hurrah of syndicated mm. television, um, of of twenty six episode series half year long series which just nowadays don't have at all i know us in the uk we're used to series being seven episodes long for for some of our favorite programs but actually i don't think that other people in other parts of the world are used to that and i think that nowadays with our 10 part series on netflix oftentimes mm. they're all available at the same time as well voyager is a is a very much that sort of a comfort blanket time when we all sort of we were growing up and every week we could tune in and see the latest episode um, that's what makes Voyager special to me. Um, in the same way, Next Generation was as well, and the same way original series was, I'm sure. But it's mm. that sort of comfortable late nineties uh, nostalgia almost, which is very strange for a future uh, set TV program. But it's it's very much a nostalgia sort of trip for me. Yeah, and you're very right in the fact that we don't see those. I mean, I think you do still get them here and there, but you don't see those t- TV shows now that go on for twenty six episodes that you know that that last that long and everybody's gone to this whole event TV series kind of notion where it is like 10 to 12 episodes and they kind of try and cram as much story as they can into that time. But, you know, there was, there was always the, you know, there was the issue back then that people thought, well, if you've got 26 episodes, there's going to be some filler because, you know, you can't possibly sustain quality over 26 episodes with the kind mm. of budget they would have. And, um, you know, all the different constraints they would have, you know, people aren't always going to be available for the whole 26 weeks. They've got to write around uh, actors being available, um, things happening in their lives. You know, when you're doing a 10 episode series, you can say, okay, we're doing all 10 episodes. You know, we're going to shoot them in, in this amount of time. Be, be available whereas you know 26 weeks um 26 weeks it is you know obviously maybe didn't take as long as that to film i'm guessing actually no i think they, they generally film like an episode a week didn't they and then they would air it as pretty much is what they what they would do um but yeah there's something lost in that i think because although yeah you'd get the filler episodes there's something about character development that gets a bit lost when you shorten mm. seasons like that um yeah. you know you're not you're not seeing as much of the characters they're not the, the if you, especially with shows like this that are a big ensemble cast there's no way you can see enough of them in 10 episodes um we've seen that with picard haven't we we've seen that yes. with picard recently with the fact that the, the characters great characters but you know I, I don't really feel any connection to the characters in picard Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the characters in Voyager, I've got a lot larger connection with because of the fact that you've seen there. I, I, I described it to someone once as being uh, the reason that we like Star Trek so much and Star Trek fans, Trekkers, love it so much is we don't only see the space battles. We don't only yeah. see the sort of major galaxy-defining moments. We also see them when they're sort of off-duty and we see them when mm-hmm. they're sort of being casual. And that makes yeah. you feel a lot more like you're not part of the crew, because it's, it's not, that's not that deep, but it, you feel like you have got a connection with the crew and you've got an actual uh, an investment made in the actual series. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. And I, I mean, going back to Picard a little bit, the, the characters that I kind of liked the most were the ones that I knew from previous seasons, uh, previous series, because you already had that connection with them. Um, like, you know, when Seven of Nine came into it, she was in it so briefly. But, you know, I was kind of already there. I already knew her background. I knew where she'd come from. So it was much easier to kind of invest in her. Whereas the newer characters, they just didn't have, some of them anyway, didn't have enough time to really fully develop. And uh, it was very, yeah, like you said, very difficult to root for them in that case. But 
Um, but yeah, this this isn't the Picard podcast. Um, I don't think Picard is anywhere in um, in Voyager, as far as I know. Um, no, no, no. No, there are some there are some other next generation favourites, which I'm sure we'll get onto as we progress through the episodes. But um, yeah, no, no Picard. Um, so yeah, I suppose um, we can kind of move on um, to the episode itself. I suppose um, that we're yeah. going to cover. So just so um, people are aware, and you know, the, kind of the the aim of this is you know myself and mike are going to chat through the episodes um it'll usually be two at a time the first episode of course is the pilot which is technically a double episode um so we'll chat through them kind of give our thoughts opinions um on them um kind of our favorite quotes and performances from the episodes um and also we'll rate them as well um so with this particular episode because it's a double a two-parter it's technically one episode so we will just rate it once um but you know the point is as well that you can watch along with us so you can watch the episodes and then tune into the podcast and kind of listen to what we think and then on twitter which we're on twitter you can kind of let us know your own thoughts about the episodes as well um whether you think our opinions were were terrible um or if you agree with us on any of the points um and you can find us on twitter at tap it nebula uh t-a-p-i-t nebula uh it's just the most simple straightforward one we could come up with should be able to remember that one uh tap it nebula and yeah, so watch it along with us. Um, kind of re- get reinvested in the show. It's uh, if you're in the UK, it's on Netflix at the moment. I think it's on Netflix in the US as well. I believe. Um, Possibly, yeah. Yeah, it may be on the CBS Access p- mm. potentially. Um, so yeah, but where, wherever you can view it, you know, if it's on a streaming service, if you've got the DVD box set, if you've got the VHS box set, perhaps um, pick it back up again, dust it off, and uh, watch along with us. So, yeah, Mike, let's mm. let's get into it, I suppose. Yeah, um, So this is um, Caretaker Parts 1 and 2. Uh, we were discussing before the episode, I think they broadcast as two separate episodes in America um, when it launched, and the launch date was January the 16th, 1995. Um, but when it came here, it was broadcast as one episode, wasn't it? I believe so, yeah. I believe there was a, there was a launch night on BBC, at least BBC launch, but Sky may have had it slightly before that. BBC had a big uh, Star Trek uh, launch night. I remember it well because there was some uh, some celebrities sort of talking about their their love of Star Trek as well, which was uh, an interesting little little uh, episode. Nice, um, yeah. I think it, well, it, yeah, it probably was on Sky as well. I think Sky One had it because I think that's where I watched it. Um, mm. And I'm pretty sure like Sky got it like did they get it like a, a year ahead perhaps of of BBC? I can't remember. It was it was a fairly it was usually a fairly significant length of time ahead of other networks that sky got things i think yeah at, but, at um, least at least year i believe yeah yeah so it's uh yeah so yeah it launched in 1995 in, in the states i think we got it a little bit later as you know this was the 90s so the uk got everything much later than america um so yeah uh, it's the pilot episode and the first thing that i kind of wanted to note about it um kind of talking through it almost chronologically is that and I did check this. I went and double checked with the other episodes, the other pilot episodes of other Star Trek shows. None of the other Star Trek shows have an opening scroll. Um, so Voyager opens with text to explain what's happening. Um, and I don't think any other shows. Had I think that. DS9 did. I think DS9 may have had a little bit about Wolf uh, 359 and how uh, the battle... Okay. It might not have been directly at the beginning. I know that at some point right. in the beginning there was some sort of bit where it described uh, how Cisco had, had escaped 
Wolf three five nine. Wolf Wolf three five nine. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I kind of watched the kind of opening couple of minutes, I think, and I didn't see anything. But yeah, it could have been a bit later than that. Um, but I thought I'd, I'd read it because it's it's a good introduction as well to maybe anybody who's not watched Voyager before and is watching along with us um, or isn't watching the series and is just listening to us speak about it. Uh, it's fairly short and the, uh, the scroll at the beginning says, um, unhappy with a new treaty, Federation colonists along the Cardassian border have banded together, calling themselves the Marquis. They continue to fight the Cardassians. Some consider them heroes, but to the governments of the Federation and Cardassia, they are outlaws. And that's where we start. Um... So yeah, that, it kind of introduces, and see, this is where my knowledge, uh, my lack of knowledge of Deep Space Nine may get the better of me. Um, the Marquis were completely new to me. I'd never heard of them as an entity before. Hmm. I'm guessing they may have been in Deep Space Nine? Yep, so the Marquis were in DS9. They were actually introduced in Next Generation. Um, uh-huh. They were introduced in an episode where uh, some of the colonists were actually... Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the episode now, unfortunately, but they were Picard was involved with it. I think Wesley Crusher was involved with it as well, I believe. But there was DS9 also had quite a bit in there. Um, I'm not entirely sure which bits were before and which bits were after, but I know that um, the Marquis were very much uh, one of Cisco's friends was in the Marquis, sort of betrayed Starfleet as it were, and it became a long running thing. Actually, I think after Voyager even aired, there were some uh, bits about the Marquis in it as well with uh, Commander Eddington. Uh, another Starfleet traitor to, to the Marquis. So the Marquis, they did have a, a, a very, very small presence in Next Generation, a larger presence in DS9, but in Voyager they were... I think as I think with all of the series, when um, they introduce a new species or a new um, organisation, they will try and they'll try out a little bit in other series. Obviously we have the Colossians, mm. for instance, in Next Generation they were introduced, and they were slightly different the way that they then found them into, uh, into DS9. The Bajorans as well, how they were first introduced, always a little bit different. And mm. um, I think with the Marquis, they they had an idea what they wanted, um, and I think then that went to uh, to Voyager, and they, they came to fruition in, in Voyager. Although maybe not in the way that maybe we will expect it to be when it first started, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. At yeah, some point. it was uh, yes, it's certainly interesting way to introduce them. To, you know, an, an interesting way to introduce the uh, the Marquis in the series. But um, so. You know, the, before the the titles roll, um, we see uh, obviously the Marquis ship uh, flying in the Badlands, um, and the the people who are on the ship, the first characters that we're introduced to in Star Trek Voyager, um, are Chakotay, uh, Belana Torres, and obviously Tuvok as well. I think there's somebody else with them. I think. I believe that's actually the the character who is in lots and lots of other episodes of Voyager. Uh, Ayala, I think it's Ayala his name is. Ah, I'm not, I'm not okay. entirely sure, but one of the marquee crew members who is an extra in every, in pretty much every single season of Voyager um, and is mentioned mm. a few times, I think his name is Ayala. I'm sure we'll, we'll, um, we'll pick that up at some point. Yeah, I have to keep an eye on that. That's uh, yeah. It just it, you kind of I I didn't notice him again in in the episode, but it's possibly because I was kind of focused on on other things. But yeah, that's that's interesting to know. But yeah, so there, you know, that we we kind of begin the whole series with uh, those you know those those characters as they find the Badlands, and uh, I think they're being chased by Cardassians, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they they kind of come across something like is it like a tachyon beam or something that scans them, and they get kind of. Uh, caught up in in a in a wave um, that comes that basically comes at them and disappear, um, and that's where we start Voyager. Um, yeah. It's and, and it's very quick as well. It's it's only a couple of minutes, and then we kind of get straight into the credits. I don't know if you want to touch upon 
um, those kind of opening couple of minutes. But I, I definitely have a fair bit to say about <laughs> about the opening credits. I don't know if you want to touch on the kind of the, the first couple of minutes before we move on to that, or. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just an interesting start. I think it's a it's a non Star Trek, a non Starfleet start, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, True. It's an interesting way of introducing a, a, a new series. Um, I think it's it's there's not much to the first few minutes, is there? Really, it's it's very much a, no. as you said, very quick sort of. I suppose a, a, a an attention grabbing um, trail, as it were. Yeah, absolutely, and it's and like you say, is is different from other shows in that you know it's not immediately clear what they have to do with the you know with the rest of the show um, yep. and obviously it becomes much clearer as we go on exactly what you know what you know what's going to happen and also how they're connected to starfleet as well which is fairly numerous there's a lot of connections to starfleet just in those yes. three characters which is yep. interesting um but yeah we, we kind of go on to the opening titles and now i don't know how controversial this opinion is going to be i think it's my favorite opening titles of all the star trek shows mm-hmm. both for the both for the theme tune and the you know the titles themselves the way that they're done i'm not sure what you'd say to that mike yeah i think it's i think the opening title sequence is fantastic it's not hasn't got that classic next generation um edge to it i think it's always going to be nostalgia for me for that but I think it was it was fantastic when it first came out. It looked amazing. The way they've done it is is really good. You know, they go for an asteroid field, which annoys me because again, asteroid fields shouldn't exist in space. But let's not go into that <laughs> very very geeky scientific question there. Um, there's a couple of bits where it, it, it's done for it's done for uh, visual appeal basically, and it's yeah. that's it's great. It looks fantastic. I think it was the first CGI one done. I, again, I'm not sure. Um, mm. It might be model work again, but I think it was a fair amount of CGI only work on there. Um, mm-hmm. Just really, really good, really sort of memorable title sequence. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty. I'm fairly certain, confident in saying that I think Voyager was all CGI because, okay. um, and I'm pretty sure that at least the majority of Deep Space Nine probably was because they've had trouble in. Um, Upresing everything and putting everything into blue, you know, kind of HD or even 4K because they'd have to redo all of the CGI okay. in order to do that. So I know that's a definite fact for Voyager because I was one of these um, huge proponents for having Voyager on Blu-ray. Yeah. It's never going to happen, unfortunately, um, unless they kind of somebody pays to redo all the CGI. But because it's not the most popular Star Trek series, it's it's very unlikely that's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely all CGI. Possibly, like you say, the first um, of the Star Trek series to be all CGI effects um, in terms of the ships and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's it is an eye catching opening, and I think that to this day, the Voyager theme tune is if I hear it, it's just so nostalgic, and it, it kind of that's the thing about the, the Star Trek theme tunes is they always convey the um the feel of the show overall so you know there's uh, the star trek next generation theme was very you know uh, there was that kind of unknown quality about it when it started and you know the, the whole point of it being that they were exploring the unknown um and voyager i don't know it, it's it's a, it's a good theme tune i think it's it's one of those catchy theme tunes i'll catch myself humming along quite uh quite regularly better than ds9 mm. which was always a little bit uh a little bit dull <laughs> ds9 theme tune yeah, and and it's obviously better than Enterprise. Which, Any, you know. Anything on Earth is better than the Enterprise theme tune. <laughs> I, I I I will I will not have that theme tune mentioned in this podcast ever again. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So uh, yeah, 
there we go. So we, we, is, does that mean we're never going to do an Enterprise podcast then? Like, I, know, I, I, do, I do an Enterprise podcast, but the first three episodes of me moaning about the theme tune, so... True, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so yeah, it's it's good overall, and obviously we, we're not going to kind of go over the opening titles every time that we do this pod, because it's going to be the same every time, so I thought it was nice to mention for the first one. Um so yeah, so we kind of, you know, we, we kind of then go into the episode proper and it, the story itself, I mean, I, I think it's one of the most interesting pilot episodes of a Star Trek show that I've ever watched and I think it's it's possibly one of the best Star Trek episodes up there with some of the best Star Trek, pilot or not, I, I, I really enjoy it as an episode. Um, Mike, what are you, you know, as as a pilot, as a, as an episode overall, what are your kind of thoughts? I think about it's it? I think it's the best pilot up to that time, definitely. Mm. Um, I think possibly Discovery beats it in terms of in terms of pilot episodes, okay. um, but in terms of an actual episode overall, it's it's one of those episodes where I will I will remember the first season of Voyager is is a memory memorable season for me. I mean, I, I've watched every episode probably twenty times now. I think for me, it lacks some of the development the series goes through. Um, mm-hmm. And some of the best characters from later on in the series. I don't mean Seven of Nine, um, but some of the <laughs> yeah. best characters how they developed, because they're they're yeah. very much new in this episode. Um, it doesn't quite have the same um, appeal to me now, but at the time it was a fantastic episode. I mean, it got massively good reviews at the time. It got massively it massively praised by Star Trek fans, which in itself is quite a remarkable thing, because Star mm. Trek fans are known to be somewhat um, harsh on new things in the fandom so it's mm-hmm. yeah it's def- definitely was a very good pilot episode and i think apart from discovery i think it's probably the best episode uh, best pilot episode we've seen mm, so back to the episode itself i think we kind of pick up pretty much straight afterwards and again this is quite odd because it doesn't feel like it's um very star trek we we, we kind of come to a penal con- colony if i remember rightly which is where we first meet uh, both um, Paris, uh, Tom yes. Paris, yeah. and also Catherine Janeway, who's obviously uh, the intrepid captain of Voyager. Um, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. We, we kind of meet uh, Paris, who is, you know, being held prisoner by um, Starfleet. I think it's a Starfleet penal colony. In it is, story, yeah. A very, very odd episode, though. A very odd character, though. Um, mm. You look at him, and obviously, straight away, people who've, who've watched Next Generation will go, well, that's Nick Nakano um, from the Next Generation episode, um, where obviously uh, the same actor plays mm-hmm. the same type of character in the Next Generation. Mm-hmm. I think possibly as a test run for the series. I'm not entirely sure, um, but obviously they changed it so that even though his backstory is very similar to the character of Nick Nakano, who was the uh, commander of, of uh, Red Squadron, I think it was the the squadron mm-hmm. at Starfleet Academy. Um, who ended up with one of their pilots dying. It's a very similar backstory in terms of the fact that he led a, a, either a mission or he was in charge of something which led to, to people's death. Mm-hmm. The reason they actually changed it for, and I read this relatively recently, was because of the fact they didn't want to actually pay for the rights to the original writer of that episode of Next Generation, but yeah. they wanted the same actor and basically the same type of character. So that's why it's a very, very similar character, but actually a completely different name than the ones already established. I, I mean, yeah, like you said, that the background of, of Paris is similar in the fact that, you know, he is responsible. I think it was for two people's yes. deaths, from what I recall. Yep. And then he goes on to join the Marquis, and that's how he's kind of captured and comes to be in prison because he's just dismissed from Starfleet, right? He gets dismissed for the deaths because it's kind of he. From it, this is from later on in the episode, but he will he he kind of admits to 
to Kim later on in the episode that he has, uh, you know, he was responsible for their deaths. Um, he thought he could get away with it, so tried to cover it up. But then basically his conscience got the better of him and he confessed to it and got dismissed. Yeah. And then he joined the Marquis and got caught on his very first mission with them. Sure. So, uh, and got put in this penal colony, which is in New Zealand of all places. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of, that's him. And I mean, it, we're kind of touching on it as a character as well. I mean, he, he, in this particular episode, and obviously he grows and develops as, as the show does, but in this particular episode, he's a bit of, um, I don't know how to describe him. He, he, he came across as a little bit uh, standoffish, um, creepy as well. There was a bit where he's a bit creepy towards some of the female characters, um, but also has a very strong sense of right and wrong and, and wanting to be part of something bigger. So he... Yeah, he's an odd character in that sense that he, you can tell he's a bit of a bad boy, but at the same time he's got um, a good nature to him and he, what he wants to be part of what's going on. Yes. Yeah, I think definitely you've hit nail on the head with really. He's a, an anti-hero sort of character. Um, I think one, one criticism which can be levelled straight away at Voyager is that that anti-hero uh, character sort of went quite quickly. Uh, it was touched mm-hmm. upon a couple of times in the series, but it didn't really develop as much as it should do. And I think it was a really, real shame because I think Robert Duncan McGill played it fantastically. And I think mm-hmm. that he could have had a really interesting character um, on board this ship. As he is, mm. uh, I think perhaps one of my favourite characters actually anyway. But I think it's he's a very interesting sort of character. He's he's played throughout the series as the, um, uh, the, the audience member's... Um, character in the series, you know, mm-hmm. he's a love for nineteen nineties, a love for nineteen uh, for nineteen sixties and seventies <laughs> sci-fi. It co- co- yeah. keeps on coming back that he's basically us, as it were, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But in the pilot episode, yeah, the, the first bit you see him is sort of it, it's it's very much after the initial shock uh, of know of going, I know him from somewhere. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting character. Yeah, it is. And to draw a comparison with the show we were talking about earlier, which is Buffy, which is another show that we both like, he very much feels, and again, this is as the show goes on, we're kind of uh, touching on that, but he, he almost feels like um, Xander, Nicholas Brendan's character, yeah. not only in the fact that he's kind of, you know, the normal person who kind of gets current references. You know, in, in Buffy, um, Xander was the person who had no special powers, who was just the normal guy um, who was just caught up in all the events. So he's kind of, you know, your touch point as the normal person in the group. Um, and but the problem was as well is that as the series went on they had less and less for him to do um, because it became you know more and more um, to do with the whole superpowers and these new characters coming in and they kind of wrote for him less and less and he, he kind of was in the background a bit more I kind of feel not maybe not to the same extent but Paris felt like as the series went on he became less and less important as a character and, and, and then he had less to do um, apart from be um in a relationship with somebody who we won't go into at the moment, but yeah, yeah, no, so that's a fair, it's a fair point actually. It's a, it's a very fair point. Um, interesting enough, I actually Xander's my favourite character from Buffy as well. So it's a, mm. it's an interesting um, comparison. I never really thought about it in that way, but yeah, as the series goes on, he does very much become um, not redundant. I think that's that's unfair, no. but he does become a little bit like, and that's be- that's because of how Voyager developed, which again we'll talk about as the series goes on. But mm-hmm. Voyager starts off in this in this original Celtic episode as being two crews, and mm-hmm. very 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 quickly it became one crew. I think it was a massive missed opportunity for the series, um, and that's very similar to uh, you mentioned Nicholas Brendan and and uh, Zandor and, and Buffy. Very similar in the fact that he's. A, a character, he's there for a point. He's a, the normality. He's the person mm-hmm. who hasn't got superpowers. He's the person who's sort of um, 
describe him, but he's he's almost like the not the funny man. That's not that's not the right word mm. to use. But he's sort of uh, the foil to the other characters. Yeah. And I think very quickly in the series, uh, in Buffy, he became redundant, and they had to try mm. and make other things into him. And then I think same with Paris, they sort of did a couple of things with him as the series goes on, where you sort of go, mm, do they know what they're doing with his character? Um, mm-hmm. Which is a couple of a couple of characters, the same thing actually. Which again, we'll, yeah, we'll mention. absolutely. But um, I mean, moving on from that, the, the other person in this kind of after credit scene that we see in the penal colony is is Janeway, and this is the first time that we are introduced to her. Um, so one thing that I wanted to touch on before we kind of go into Janeway as a character is um, that. So she's played by um, Kate Mulgrew, uh, who is a fantastic actress. Um, people who perhaps didn't watch Voyager at the time uh, may be more familiar with her for her role in Orange is the New Black. She's red in that series. It's her most famous role of the kind of more, of more recent times. Um, so she's great that she plays Catherine Janeway, um, who is the captain of Voyager. But before um, she was brought in to play the role, they actually had a different actress entirely um, kind of brought in, um, which we kind of discussed beforehand, which is uh, she's a, a French-Canadian actress called Genevieve Bujol. Um, and as far as, we, as far as we're aware, so I think there was a bunch of um, extras on the first season DVD box set and I think this is one of them and it's the only scene that, that was completed that she'd shot this particular actress uh, I think that's right it's uh, one of the scenes from the very first episode that she shot and that was that was all that she completed is that right? Uh, I believe so. She played uh, that character, um, but from what from what I understand, from what I believe I understand, obviously correct me if I'm wrong, people of Twitter, people of podcast land. Oh, and they will. Um, they will as well. And they they definitely will. Um, from what I understand, she uh, I think she wasn't. Uh, she became a bit disillusioned with. I think it was the schedule um, of of being on a. Uh, you know, on a TV a TV show um, such as this, that kind of shoots twenty six episodes. Um, I think part of it, perhaps, was that she didn't want to be typecast into you know this kind of Star Trek sci fi um, you know uh, brand of TV, um, which is all very fair, especially being typecast. You know, there are a lot of sci fi actors who end up getting very much um, only sci fi parts. So yeah, there are, there are people who are just basically known for their particular roles and will then kind of stick in sci-fi and uh, I think Voyager had a few of those and there are a few of obviously who just kind of haven't gone on to do do much but yeah so my point there I suppose was that uh, Genevieve uh, you know perhaps rightly was worried about being typecast and stepped away yes. uh, from the show before they'd even finished filming the pilot um, and they brought in Kate Mulgrew um, I mean we've both seen her performance you know it's only one scene it's a couple of minutes um, do you think that that Janeway that, that Genevieve um, portrayed, do you think that could have been one that could have sustained a, a show such as Voyager? Or do you think it was it was the right choice to bring in somebody like Mulgrew instead? Uh, I think a simple answer to your first part of that question would be no. Um, <laughs> and a second part would be, I think, Kate Mulgrew is a far better choice. I think hindsight's always important um, because obviously we don't know what she would have been like in a series. But I think... From from the the small screen test we've seen, it's not a screen test I know, but from the small piece we've seen, I think I, I once heard it been described as a very a mumbling performance. Mm. Um, it felt like she wasn't really engaging very much, and I think that's something which was was quite yeah would be quite difficult to to put up with over the series. I think Kate Mulgrew is a great yeah. great choice. Yeah, yeah, she she definitely didn't have much of a commanding presence, and no. um, I think one of the good things about Mulgrew is that. She has a commanding presence, but she's also 
um, very soft and feminine as well when when she wants to be. You know, there's there's a great um, there is a great scene, and it's a you know it's in this episode, which is when she talks to her. I believe it's her. I don't think it's a husband. I think it's a boyfriend, Partner, Mark. Yeah. yeah partner that's it because they they have separate houses um you know being the uh, the 20th century um you know they don't they don't they're not married they don't it's not the 20th century it's the 24th <laughs> fourth century 20th century when it was broadcast um so uh, <clears throat> yeah so she uh, she has a partner and she kind of speaks to him briefly before she goes on this mission um, which we'll discuss um and she's very very soft um and delicate even and, and as I say feminine and then as soon as the call ends and her crew come into the room she just kind of turns on this uh, commanding you know I am the captain um, you know I'm I'm here and this is my ship um, and she's very good at that I think she's very good at being able to um, you know use use the fact that she is a captain well but kind of uh, knit in the fact that she's a woman because that's that's another big thing to mention this is a f- the first female captain yeah to have her own tv series i think it's that, that was a huge deal i think it's bigger than that even i think the yeah. i think the the character was the first one of the first uh, strong female um commanding um characters in any tv series in america mm. um it's a very much a i'm not in america actually in, in science fiction generally it's also yeah. quite interesting the fact that even though she she is a, a woman they don't typecast her as a sort of a motherly figure, no. um, especially not in the start. There is elements as the series goes on that she becomes a motherly figure, but mm-hmm. in the beginning she's not. She hasn't got any children. She hasn't got a family. That's mm-hmm. actually quite a big thing for American TV. It's yeah. actually quite a big thing to a strong woman in charge of something who's not just a mother, um, who's not just someone who's in charge of a family group, to actually have this strong female presence and again I don't like to talk about it again but bring up Buffy again you know what I mean the ni- late <laughs> 1990s had two of the, the strongest female characters um, yeah. TV's ever seen um, at, at pretty much the same time actually the same I think it was the same year it was launched wasn't it uh, Buffy mm. so it's uh, around the same year yeah. yeah so very interesting how she the, the very initial scene she's in is very much a it's not a Picard it's not a Cisco character mm-hmm. Straight away, she makes her own sort of uh, in-charge character. There's a scene later yeah. on where they, they mention with the whole what to call her. Um, mm. When they, they go through where to call her ma'am or where to call her sir. or That's a, quite a telling scene because I think it, it shows again that it's not... She's not a sort of a... TV has a, a habit. TV and movie has a habit. Whenever they want to do a strong female character, make the female character into be a, sort of this tyrant... Um, mm. And she's not. Janeway's not turned into that. She has got this, as you yeah. said, soft sort of feminine side. I'm, I'm saying feminine side. I don't think it, I don't think it's a feminine side or such. I think it's just a softer side yeah. to her character. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean. Yeah, she does that really well. And it's like you say, it's there's that whole thing. If you have somebody in command or, or a strong female character, it's almost that she has to be a man in yeah. the way she acts and the way she. Um, and, and she's very much not like that. Um, you know, she can be strong and firm and commanding when she wants to be, but she doesn't always have to be that way. Yeah. And the, yeah, the scene that you mentioned where I think it's um, Kim is basically called her sir because that's Starfleet protocol. Right. And uh, she and he she goes no you know don't call me sir and she said he says ma'am and it's like only in a pinch uh, I prefer yeah. captain. Yeah. Um, and. Um, you know that's that's great because you know she doesn't want to be referred to as a man. She doesn't want to, she, she doesn't want the sir title. She'll accept ma'am, you know, if absolutely necessary. But she prefers being called by her professional title. Yep. She's kind of earned that 
um, you know, that title and she, she wants the respect that that kind of commands. Um, but she doesn't want to have that respect if it's given to her in a, in a male way, you know, in a, in a masculine way. She doesn't want, she doesn't like the term sir. Um, and a lot of sci-fi shows, people refer to female characters as sir if they're in command. So it's, it's a nice way to kind of brush that off straight away. You know, she's not one of those kind of characters. She's completely different. I really like that. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, so Janeway obviously kind of begins the show picking up um, Tom Paris from this penal colony, basically to go on a mission to to track down this marquee ship that's gone missing in the first few minutes of the show. Um, and uh, the reason for that is that kind of Tom Paris has connections with uh, Chakotay, who is the um, the the commander of that of that marquee ship. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you know, and because Tom Paris obviously was in the marquee for a short time, he's got kind of some information and some knowledge of what was going on um, with the marquee. Uh, so yeah, he's brought on board uh, with the um, proviso that you know he will be a an observer, and they will kind of put in a good word for him at his next review. So he's not going out; he's not going to be kind of let off uh, for coming to help them, and he's certainly not going to be made part of the crew. But he, uh, you know, if he helps them, he'll get something out of it. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how it begins, really. And they kind of go off to to Voyager. And um, the first time we see Voyager is actually via Deep Space Nine, yes. of all places, which I thought was quite interesting. A nice kind of way to bring in old viewers, I suppose, of, of Deep Space... Well, I say old viewers, Deep Space Nine and Voyager ran concurrently, didn't they, for a, for a number of years? Yes, yeah. It's a, the handoff, isn't it? It's the handoff to, to the new series. Next Generation did it to DS9 with Captain Picard going to DS9. Um, mm-hmm. And same with Voyager, they they introduce it. Well, interestingly, um, they don't actually show any characters from DS9 apart from one, yes. um, Quark, which is yes. an interesting one. I think it's a, a, an interesting choice uh, on two on two levels. First of all, mm-hmm. they don't show any Starfleet crew. Um, that's a really interesting way of of not um, making Cisco seem in some way in charge. Almost to me, like with Picard to, to Cisco, it was almost that thing where Picard was a, a higher rank and he he passed it on to a, to a lower command officer in DS9. Always seemed a bit mm-hmm. odd to me that Voyager. I think they they escaped that by just putting the the obvious fan favorite character Quark in it, um, doing yeah. his normal Quark like activities, um, trying to <laughs> scam young ensigns. Um, yes, but really good, really good portrayal actually. Real good portrayal for quite a small a small part. Um, it's a mm. really good portrayal. Yeah, and this is where we meet. Um, I think this is the first time we see uh, Ensign Kim. Yes. Um, so Harry Kim, who is the next character that we meet, um, and we very quickly find out that it is his very first mission on his very first starship. Uh, he's fresh out of the academy, um, so it's his first posting. And uh, yeah, as you say, he's kind of almost conned out of a lot of money by um by by uh, quark um before he even begins um but he gets uh, he gets helped out by paris who happens to be there as well um and it's kind of the start of a bit of a, a friendship really isn't it yeah. well i say a bit of a friendship it's a friendship um yeah. it's the beginning of a friendship that they that they form and it's uh, it's kind of a very it's very quick as well in the first episode because um harry and uh, tom um there's this uh, there's a dynamic between them that you know that tom's kind of helping him out because it's it's harry's first time basically um but you get the you get the um what's it what's it called like the, the tension there because um harry found finds out what tom did uh, and there's the whole 
um, tension there as to to what went what went on. But then it be quickly becomes clear that Harry doesn't really care. Um, <laughs> he's uh, he's you know he it doesn't matter to him um, what other people think or their opinions, and you know he's quite quickly bonded with with Tom, and and Tom quite likes Harry because you know he's very protective of him later on in the episode as well. I think it's a great. The, the two characters are great as well. They they play off quite well. The actors, um, Geralt Lang yeah. and Robert Duncan McNeil, are very very good together right from the off, which is very difficult to get with any characters in any series. Mm. Um, but it's really really good. I think that the way they actually actually interact and the way they actually um, become friends, instant friends almost, um, despite mm. what happens in terms of the Voyager crew trying to um, turn Harry Kim against uh, against Paris. It's a really interesting yeah. initial scene. It's an interesting scene as well because it's not; it doesn't develop the plot of the of the series that much. Mm-hmm. So it's not. Uh, I suppose it introduces Harry Kim. It doesn't really doesn't actually. Um, it doesn't have a massive bearing on the actual plot. So it's it's mm-hmm. very much a sort of a a nice scene almost. I like in Star Trek to have these little scenes occasionally where you'll have a scene which has no has no real relevance, has no real purpose other mm-hmm. than just to please the fans. And I think this scene is is mm-hmm. one of those scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, moving back onto the episode itself, their whole mission here is that they're looking for the marquee ship that's disappeared, um, and they follow in the footsteps of the ship um, and end up basically suffering the same fate in that they are kind of um, swept up by this this wave um, and transported elsewhere. Um, and that's kind of where the next part of the episode comes into play, which is the fact that they realise that they've been taken... I think that it was 70,000 light years away from home. Yes. Um, and yeah, they'd been transported to the other side of the galaxy. Um, and along the way, part, you know, going through that wave um, kind of did a lot of damage to Voyager and quite a number of the crew died. I think there was a fair few of the crew died, um, including the doctor and the first officer. Um, and so that brings us to, yeah, to, to that, that point, I suppose, where... Yes. They're at the other side of the galaxy. It's it, the whole, um, the, the unique selling point of the show, I suppose, is that they're no longer in Federation space. Uh, they're not, not even on the edge of Federation space. They are uh, fully blown across the galaxy into a, a sector never before explored. Um, they have no idea where they are. So yeah, it's it, it's certainly something that that is brand new to the to the Star Trek universe. I think it's it's. It, I mean, this is the whole point of the show, wasn't it? Voyager was meant to be completely. Uh, away from Federation, that they wanted to explore things that had nothing to do with the Federation whatsoever, and and kind of give um, a Federation vessel the chance to do something. Even even the Enterprise didn't get to do, which is um, you know have to struggle with um, completely unknown things, things completely outside of their knowledge um, and their ability to even cope with at times. Um, it's a, a very interesting premise to to kind of be taken that far away from. You know everything else in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it's it, at the time and, and still now it gets disparaged sometimes, and people say it's it's Star Trek lost in space, um, mm. or they try and say that it's it's you know they want a whole new sort of quadrant of the galaxy to play in, but actually they spend most of the next seven seasons um, paying fan service in 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 other ways by bringing up back characters and and races that we've already seen. I think there is a fair point to that. I think there is they could have done a lot more. 
but in this pilot episode it works really really well I think it's uh, an intriguing premise it's straight away it sets out its stall that it's going to be something different it's not going to be mm-hmm. and the complete opposite of course on DS9 DS9 you know, the only stationary Star Trek series um, yeah. and then suddenly we have a series which is actually there's nothing stationary about us at all mm-hmm. yeah constantly moving it's yeah, it's it is an interesting premise for sure. Um, I mean, to begin with, we we you know you don't know if that's where they're going to end up by the end of the episode. Of course, we know that they're not going to get home very easily, um, but we'll kind of come on to that. So, the the name of the episode, of course, is Caretaker, and um, that is essentially he's brought them to the Delta Quadrant. Yep. Um, is uh, is the Caretaker? Um, so they come across this array that is uh, that they've kind of been transported to. And uh, I think that the next thing that happens is that they're all kind of unceremoniously um, transported aboard the array um, to much to the chagrin of um, the emergency medical hologram yes. who we actually meet for the first time because the doctor has died and uh, everybody goes to the sick bay and the, uh, the EMH is activated and of course played by the wonderful Robert Picardo. Yeah. Um, I know he's he's somebody that you quite enjoy as a character, so I might let you kind of go into the Doctor a little bit more, especially in this particular pilot episode, yeah. um, kind of how he is. I think it's... Uh, Rob Picardo is a fantastic actor um, anyway, and in terms of everything he does, he brings this sort mm. of... Um, I like to say high-level B-moviness to it, in terms of the fact that he, you know, he brings this sort of level of enthusiasm and level of, of real integrity to a character. And in this episode's fantastic. The Doctor... Um, who is, I suppose, to an extent, a data type character in terms of the fact mm-hmm. that he's you know, he's not human. He does spend most of the time wanting to be human as the series goes on. Um, but he's an interesting character in this one because in this in this pilot episode, he isn't much of a character. Um, there isn't really much about him that you really gather from this episode at all, apart from the fact mm-hmm. that he's quite miserable. Um, mm-hmm sort of it brings back bones a little bit it sort of brings back a little bit of that sort of grumpy medical officer um Mm -hmm. this is really interesting and i think that they to have an artificial light form on the ship already i think is an ingenious character to bring into the series because it expands the amount of stuff they can do with the character exponentially um Mm. same as odo same as as data all those characters were characters you could really play with a lot more and I think that yeah. as much as we like Paris, as much as we like Kim, as much as we like every other character, really, it's characters like the Doctor, which makes Star Trek. It's the characters we all remember because of the fact they are so fun and they are so yeah. interesting. But in this episode, no. This episode, he's basically grumpy. He's not happy about the fact that everyone uh, doesn't t- no one turns him off. He's not happy about it. people don't really um, listen to him. But he hasn't really got a personality. So the EMH, um, which was obviously was... The Voyage was one of the first ships the EMH was on... And the entire premise of him being a temporary emergency medical health pro- program, and then being basically thrust into a position where he is now going to be locked on board a ship, um, it will be developed as the series goes on. But in this first episode, you don't get a huge amount more than just the initial annoyance of the of the of the program. It, it almost feels to to begin with that he's he's kind of always there to be the the comedy character. Yes. You know, it's like oh the grumpy the grumpy doctor. You know, it's he, you know nobody's turned him off. He's um, you know, he's he's not used to doing everything without a nurse, or you know, he's he's very he's very funny because of his his grumpiness, and it feels like that was what that's what he's going to be, and to a degree, that kind of is what he is. He he does have that com- comedy character element about him, but 
you know as the series progresses as with all the characters to to a certain extent he 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 expands beyond that as a character he's not just literally 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 expands beyond um and that's really nice to see as well because it's of all the characters i think from the first episode especially like you say is the one that's developed the least and it's kind of nice to see his progression um from kind of those beginnings to where he ends up um so yeah, and the, and there's, I mean, you know, this is way in the future, but there's one particular episode that always sticks in my head with the Doctor, um, and I can't remember the name of the episode now, but it's it's the episode where he has to be, he's the only the only uh, the only member of the crew that can be transported down to a planet mm-hmm. below where everything runs faster. Oh yes, uh, time Blink runs of an faster. Eye. Blink of an eye. That's the one. Um, I always remember that episode. Whenever I think of the Doctor, that's Fantastic the episode that episode, I always yeah. remember. Absolutely yeah. great episode, but. Um, so yes, but we will obviously come to that as we go on. As we keep saying in this episode, we'll come to that later. Um, so we, uh, yeah, we, we meet him for the first time, um, but he doesn't have a huge amount of bearing on the rest of the episode, really. Nope. Um, so yeah, so they all get, everybody else uh, gets transported to the array. Um, and very strangely as well, they, they are then transported to what seems to be 1940s Deep South mm. America. Yeah. Um, Mike, what, I mean... You know, I, when you kind of see something like that, I just assumed to begin with that it was... I mean, and it is kind of like a holodeck situation. Um, but it quickly becomes a bit more... Um, there's a certain... There's a certain um, I always find it interesting the fact they picked the setting they picked. I think they picked it because of... Um, I'm guessing for Janeway, in terms of the fact that it's the past Janeway remembers. Although... No one's going to mm-hmm. know that kind of America because that's four hundred years in the past. It's a bit of an odd, yeah. <laughs> an odd choice, really. Um, but I understand why they did it for. You know, it's an American audience primarily. You know, we understand all that. Mm-hmm. But I think that with that kind of setting's always got a slightly. Um, it's, it's a very popular setting in horror films for a reason. Mm-hmm. That sort of Stepford wife, almost sort of too perfect to be realistic setting, and yeah. I think that comes across quite quite early on. Yeah, and you've got the you know the, there's the the connotations of the deep south with um, you know the Confederacy um, you know slavery um, so there's you know there's the these people who are different from them that kind of stance towards it, as you say the step step of wives it all seems very nice on the surface but actually underneath it's it's anything but and uh, we kind of see that as the the crew kind of explore a bit further to see what where they actually are uh, and they kind of come across. Um, where they think the people from the Marquis ship are being held, and yep. very quickly the these these holographic um, projections turn a bit nasty on them with the pitchforks, um, and really don't want them to see what's beyond the facade, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's it's again it becomes that sort of slightly horror. There's a very very small element of the film where suddenly it becomes a sort of a mm. horror element, which is uh, not played up as much as it maybe should have been, but it's a pilot episode, so we can forgive them. Yeah, very true. Um, and it's and it's kind of here that we uh, we discover the kind of the true intention, which is that uh, they're um, kind of held captive um, and kind of tested and probed. Um, all of the all of the crew are kind of um, they're kind of sedated, I suppose, and a, a very large needle <laughs> inserted into the abdomen, which um, didn't look very pleasant at all. Um, and 
it's I kind of thought okay well because I hadn't seen Caretaker for quite some time and I, I'd forgotten what happened next and the next thing that happens is that the majority of the crew get kind of dumped back on Voyager again yes uh, quite unceremoniously several days later um, according to uh, the the EMH the Doctor uh, apart from on Voyager Harry Kim and on the Marquis ship uh, Balana Torres uh, both of those uh, characters don't get deposited back onto their respective ships um, so then it becomes about them finding out well where where have they gone. Uh, where have these crew members gone? And um, of course, being uh, the Federation, being Starfleet especially, um, they're not going to leave a crew member behind. It's just not done um, unless you're a red shirt and get shot. Yeah. Um, otherwise, they're not going to leave you behind. There's no way. Um, so that's kind of where we we actually meet the caretaker when they go back onto the ship, um, onto the array to find out what's happened. And uh, yeah, I think that that in itself is quite an interesting scene. I think it's Tuvok and Janeway go back to the array uh, to find out what's happened to the missing crew. Yeah. Um, they, they, they meet up, don't they? Obviously, at that point then, the, the Voyager crew and the Marquis crew have, have, have met. Yes. So they get over that, right. that initial... There's an initial bit in the, in the episode where you have that tension, where Chakotay, who's clearly not happy with um, Starfleet being involved, uh, Chakotay believes Starfleet have sold out his people to, to the Colossians. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, he beams on board with um, the unnamed crew member, who I believe is, is Lieutenant Ayala, and Tuvok, um, who they go onto the board ship, and obviously they meet Janeway. This is when we first introduce ourselves to Tuvok and Chakotay in, in any meaningful way. We haven't really seen him in a meaningful yeah. way yet. So, uh, straight away, Tuvok uh, comes out and explains that he actually is working for Starfleet, um, and mm-hmm. has been uh, put there by Janeway. Um, in a role which I've never really understood, because Janeway was a captain of a ship, but was placing uh, officers in yeah, I don't really understand how that worked but either way mm-hmm. um, so you meet Chakotay you meet Tuvok uh, I don't know about you but Chakotay to me the first episode really really good episode he was really strong mm. an anti-hero yeah. again a character who was really up against Janeway's sort of um, not strict but Janeway's sort of very commanding way she went about herself Chakotay was very much not mm. like that he was like a pirate captain almost um, and Tuvok who is in my opinion, one of the greatest characters Star Trek ever produced, uh, and one of the greatest actors uh, Star Trek has in Tim Ross, um, was a really good character, and straight away to put off the fact that he's been spying and has therefore pretty much made an enemy of Chakotay before the series even begins, is a very mm. interesting way of, of setting up a conflict uh, for the series. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're right as well, because uh, Tuvok is introduced as Janeway's security officer on Voyager. So quite why they've put the security officer for the ship, um, it kind of deep undercover with the Marquis. Because it's not like he could have just kind of, you know, kind of wandered on board and go on, hi, hi there, do you need do you need somebody to help? Yeah. You know, he'd have had to have the credentials, he'd have had to meet people. It would have probably taken him weeks, if not months, to get to the point that he was on with, with that particular ship. So she's been without her security officer for goodness knows how long, so it does seem like a, a really odd... But what, what was she, what was she without a security... What was she, what was she actually on without a security officer? Because she wasn't a captain before the Voyager. Where was she? Who was she in command of at that point to be able to assign people to be working undercover for the, uh, with the Marquis... When in actual fact she didn't have a ship, the Voyager was still being built. Um, it just seems a little bit, I don't know, it's one of those little loopholes which Star Trek always throws up occasionally, but it's always fun to speculate. Yeah, always fun to speculate. And yeah, Tuvok's um, kind of undercover role in the Marquis does set up the conflict quite well. Um, and you're right that um, Chakotay, uh, it's Robert Beltran who plays Chakotay, um, does very well um, in kind of putting that character across. And Unfortunately, I think it's something that he doesn't maintain throughout the whole of the show. Um, 
but especially in in the you know in the pilot he's he's very convincing and he's um yeah he's he set up very nicely in that in that particular episode in that particular scene as well um as you know to be that kind of uh counterpoint i suppose to to janeway he's more hot-headed and she's more together they kind of so we obviously we meet them and it's it's then they decide to work together to get their crew members back um but yeah it's so it's then that they go on board and this is where they meet the the caretaker obviously for the first time which we're introduced as um a very old man playing the banjo um <laughs> that's how we first see the caretaker um yeah. it's an interesting character again i think we mentioned about the fact obviously he's a the entire setup is, is interesting but the caretaker itself as a character you don't really learn much about him until the end do you still don't know all about him until mm. the very end of the episode um and in fact the series as the series goes on you learn a couple of more facts about the caretaker but um yeah. it's an interesting character it's a sort of a, a throwaway character to an extent to me i don't really i don't really think it did a huge amount for the episode it was a premise of, of why the series happens but um i don't think it was necessarily the, the greatest way of doing it i think they could have done a bit more of an interesting way i think it was a bit Mm. Um, you know, old man transport ship, many light years. It seemed a little, little bit, a uh, little bit too convenient for me personally. But we, it's you know, we kind of see that he quickly, um, you know, they're, they're basically saying we need to get home. You need to send us home and give us our crew back, obviously, and send us home. Mm. Um, and he's very adamant that you know that the crew can't be given back. They're important. They're needed for something. Um, yes. And um, he 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 very much won't do. You know, he won't send them home. Um, and I think there was you'd mentioned that his his kind of um, almost his gesture and the way that he deals with them, the way he interacts with them, is, is quite interesting at this particular point as well. It is. It's he's he's he makes a gesture towards um, Janeway that he's had enough basically of, of speaking to her. Uh, it's very dismissive. Very. Uh, you don't know why. You don't really know why he's dismissive of it um, mm-hmm. until we go on, and obviously we meet uh, the next plot line and the, the closing plot lines as it were of the fill of, of the episode which of course is the Acompa. They quickly find out there is a um, a system not too far away from where the array is and on the fifth planet which they keep mentioning very much the fifth planet it's uh, always referred to as the fifth planet um, is where uh, basically the the, um, the array is sending a pulse to uh, to this fifth planet so they kind of decide that that's probably their best their best shot at finding out where um Harry Kim and Belana Torres have gone to. Yeah. Um, so they decide to head off to this planet. Um, so before we, so the character we meet shortly before that, I think they cut to that planet um, where we see, you know, where Kim and uh, Torres are being held. And this is where the first time we really get to meet Belana Torres as yeah. well. Um, so they're being kind of treated in some kind of medical facility they they basically they've they've arrived there they don't know why um all they all they know is that they've actually been given some kind of awful disease um kind of lesions on their skin and you know they're being told that it's a very horrible disease to have and that they're very sick um and taurus doesn't really react to that very well um no. so um I, you know our interest so, so Belana torres member of the marquee she is half human half klingon um, and it's very, very much evident to begin with that she's half Klingon because her anger is kind of off the scale from the get-go. Um, it's incredibly hammy anger as well. It's very, mm. um, yeah, it's on the hammy end of the spectrum. Um, and it's quite, a, it's an interesting introduction to a character as well because 
that's kind of all we're shown of her really to begin with isn't it is is how angry she is and and why she's angry as well that's that's all we really know of her in this i suppose that's the only way of reintroducing a klingon character isn't it you know what what do you know about klingons they're angry um yeah it's true it's i like blanca as the series goes on she becomes one of my favorite characters she's a really good character um Hmm. but yeah in the first episode she's very much the 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 angry um comparison to ensign harry kim's sort of very not laid back because he's not laid back at all but it's I suppose scared Uh, Harry Kim's almost like Mm. scared in the episode whereas because I think he's because he's green at the academy whereas Torres is very much angry from the get go but you're right she doesn't really pick there isn't really much of Torres in this episode at all really no she she does seem to be there almost to um her anger kind of gets things to progress slightly you know like she's angry so therefore uh, she wants to get out and she's yeah. very much the one who kind of pushes them to to escape yes. um, and uh, later on um, when there's a decision there's a big decision to be made towards the end of the episode she's basically the only one who kind of voices her dissent to the decision um, so I thought yeah. that was quite interesting That's the, those are the only two real big things I remember apart from the anger yeah. um, but I mean the, the anger in general I mean it's something that comes up time and again for Torres anyway it's, it's a big part of her character um, but it, it does feel a bit one note in in the pilot perhaps and they didn't have chance to explore it well enough perhaps yeah I think so I think so I think it's you know you don't need to establish much for a Klingon if you just if you've got a Klingon look to them you sort of pretty much established something already so I think they didn't need to do as much yeah. time with her as they would have with other characters including the next character we're going to introduce of course Yes, so um, so obviously, yes, yeah, absolutely, um, and you know we've we've so far all the characters that we've we've kind of come across have originated in in the Alpha Quadrant. Um, the next two characters that we come across, the first one, which I found really odd, was that they just randomly come across a, a debris field on their way to the planet, yeah. and they so happen to find that there is a a, a life form in one of the still um, kind of whole ships. Um, on you know that's in this debris. I think it's it must be Neelix's ship. I'm guessing. Yes. He's, uh, yeah. he's no. I don't think he's anywhere near his homeworld either. And it's kind of not quite clear. You know who he is in the grand scheme of things and why he's where he is. Apart from he wants to collect a bunch of of crap. Basically, yes. he's very much just after the debris in the in the field, um, possibly to sell. I'm guessing or to find something of interest. Um, so he's he's kind of found there. And uh, yeah, there's just basically an offer put to him that if they if, if he can help them, they need they need kind of a local guide, I suppose, to help them with their search. Um, they'll give him all the water he wants because uh, water is uh, very scarce uh, from what we get, what we're told. So, Mike, what are your initial thoughts on Neelix? Yeah, an interesting character, uh, that alien character that every series needs. You know, they had Spock, they had they had um, Worf, I suppose, in in. Uh... Next nation that they had Odo. I think Neelix is an interesting character because he's a he's a comedy character. I think quite obviously, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't really need another comedy character in the series. They already had the Doctor. I say they already had. Obviously, mm. both characters were obviously made at the same time. Um, but Neelix becomes an interesting character as the series goes on. He's 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 not a beloved character in Star Trek. He's not the most popular mm. character, but actually he does have some really good episodes uh, later on in the series. Yeah. But in the first episode, he's little bit annoying yeah but i think purposefully so as well i think that's that's just who he's supposed to be he is a very um he's i I don't know how i'd describe him apart from he's kind of the del boy of the delta quadrant in a way he's kind of yeah wheeling and dealing a bit he's 
um, you know, he's he's kind of making a lot of enemies um, as well as a few friends. Um, and he's just trying to, you know, he, he's got his own best interests at heart quite a lot, I think, um, which becomes very clear in, in what he does next, which, you know, is the fact that he decides to help them for all this water. Um, and it's very, you know, they give him quarters on the ship and all he's got in there are just basically glasses upon glasses of water, along with as much food as he can get at the replicators. Um, but yeah, he's... Uh, he takes them to the planet um, and leads them to where they need to go, um, which is a, a Kazon encampment. So the Kazon being um, another Delta Quadrant alien race that they come across in this particular episode. Um, and they are kind of living on the surface of this planet, which has had something pretty bad happen to it. It's basically all desert. There's no water to be had anywhere. Um, and so they bring water down in order to kind of barter with these Kazon to find uh, find out what they know about getting underground, which is where the um, Ocampans, the Ocampans, isn't it? The Ocampans live. Ocompa, yeah. Ocampans, Ocampans. Yeah. Same, it's the um, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> same thing. Um, and this is actually where we meet the, I think it's the final character um, who is a part of the show, and that is Kez. Yes. Uh, who's looking very beaten up and uh, not at all happy. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a... It's an interesting character. So I, I, I'm going to just sort of talk about Kazon a little bit and, and Kez. Um, yes. Because we are, we are close to the end of the episode. I think it's quite important to mention. Yeah. So, so Kez, for me, is a character who... Uh, so she's only two uh, in this episode. She's... Um, mm-hmm. The race only lives for nine years, which is an interesting... Um, I understand why the series did it for you know a character basically will live seven years for the for the length of, mm-hmm. of a normal Star Trek series, but straight away it always seemed okay, a little bit weird. Um, the character is very softly spoken; it's a very mm-hmm. uh, gentle character, um, and also a character which very quickly becomes a sort of a, a, a Troy-like character in terms of the, the telepathic. But in terms of this episode, all you really know about her uh, is that she is a been kidnapped by the Kazon um, and Neelix obviously has uh, fallen in love with her at some point in the past mm-hmm. and wants to cap- wants to rescue her sorry um, which is fine um, I'm not sure about your thoughts about Kez uh, it's, she's not a beloved character again compared to some no she's not um, and I mean in this episode I was surprised actually because it has been some time since I've watched Caretaker and you know my memories of Kez are probably kind of um they're filtered through the later series that she was in um, when perhaps she wasn't her best. Um, in this particular episode, though, I was quite surprised how once, you know, once it was quite clear that she wasn't just kind of this, um, you know, poor, beaten, you know, girl in the corner yeah. um, who kind of comes out. She's actually quite um, she's actually quite authoritative in her own way. Um which perhaps she wasn't later on, but she um, she certainly was in this episode, and I, that's something I hadn't really recalled of her. Um, she there was a bit of a, a, a word spunkiness. She was kind of spunky, mm-hmm. um, even even though she's a bit quiet. In this particular episode, there was a little bit of that element to her, and I'm not sure if they maybe that got lost um, as it went on, perhaps. But definitely in this episode, there was that element of, of spunkiness to her. Yeah. Then obviously we mentioned the Kazon. So the Kazon are the are the big bad guys that they've introduced for this series. Um, mm-hmm. There's two problems with it. First of all, I think the character, the the actual race itself, is is a very poorly thought out race. I mean, you know, basically it's Delta Quadrant Klingons, but with sort of like the Romulan sort of moles, which mm-hmm. I just I think it's very much uh, okay. We've seen it before. We haven't really don't need it that much. 
this actual first set, so the Kazon are divided into different sects, different clans, which change mm-hmm. on a daily basis of how many there are. Um, and <laughs> in this original episode, the, the ones you meet, they're okay, actually. They're, they're not too bad. But very quickly in the series, the Kazon become um, an anchor for Voyager in terms of the fact that mm. you can't escape them. It takes a few years for us to get away from the Kazon, and I think that really mm-hmm. changes a, a series which is meant to be moving all the time home. You just do feel a little bit like you're um, standing still. And so I think after this first mm. episode, when I think people, fans were quite surprised the Kazon were back in it again, because they didn't really understand, well, why are we seeing the same characters? Why are we seeing the same races um, when we're mm-hmm. meant to be moving at great speed through Delta Quadrant? So I think yeah. it's uh, it, it's not the greatest cat, not the greatest alien race they could have done. I think they could have done something really, really out there with this series, um, and mm. they didn't. So a little bit disappointed on, on, on that regard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about out there, I mean, there was you know, there's there's an enemy that crops up much later on, um, not for very much, and we won't talk about it here. But that's very CGI heavy yes. um, in what it was, um, and something like that would have probably been perfect but also cgi so there's you know there's the the cost involved with that so i kind of get that they'd have to go with more humanoid but again yeah they maybe could have designed that particular race a bit better yeah i think so i think it's it's just a a a slightly more sobering part of the episode in terms of the fact of oh it's it's all new it's great but also it's the same and whilst that's good in some respects Mm. Um, I think in terms of alien races, in terms of changing how characters and how um, species are, I think there was a, a, a big chance for them to do something quite different. And I think quite early on in the series, they introduced some some species in Voyager that were actually quite a lot different. But again, it's the pilot episode, mm. it's the first episode, they haven't had a huge amount of time to develop everything, so let's, let's do better for yeah. the time. Yeah, and as a bit of an antagonist for this episode, that actually works it fairly does, well. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, it worked well. I it was weird though because it, it almost felt when you met them first with Kez and when they kind of kind of Neelix double crossed them um to get Kez back. Um it, it almost felt like that's where they, that's kind of where they were. It was like a small tribe yes. and then to see them later on in the episode when they have like um ships and they're calling in more ships and it was like, "Oh, there was like you know, there was like 20 of you and you were really struggling for water and yet you have starships yep. and you're able to call in more starships." Yep. It just felt a bit Odd in that regard. Yeah, the water, the um, water thing was, um, was was very much a sort of a water world esque moment where they sort of forgot that actually um, you could do quite a lot of different stuff with water in terms of you know there was other planets I'm sure within within range of a, of a ship that could actually have mm-hmm. water on them. Um, yeah. I think it was an obvious an obvious mistake which they they didn't deal with particularly well over the course of the series. The Kazon, again, are not a liked species, I don't think. They're not particularly a fan favourite, mm. so um, a bit of a shame. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's de- there's definitely a much better species that they come across later on that, that kind of drive things forward and they're much better as antagonists. But yeah, the Kazon, I, I, I do kind of get it, I suppose, if they, you know the fact that they're designed fairly similarly to some others that we've seen. Perhaps the fact that Voyager is in such a different place than the other series maybe they thought it'd be nice to have something at least vaguely familiar yeah. um for fans but like you say mate you know considering what they've done it would have been nice for them to go the extra the extra step and be completely out there with it but um 
Okay. Um, so yeah, we're coming towards the end. I mean, we can we can probably skip over quite a lot of this. So it's it, it is basically uh, attempting to get um, uh, both Harry and Balana um, from underground, from um, where they're being held, yeah. um, and also their their own attempts to escape. Um, but yeah, we, we find out that Kez has basically um, kind of come above ground. Um, for I don't know, we don't really know why she came above ground, do we? It's I not really explained not in this episode. I think it's the way you described it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and also, I'm not sure how um, Neelix knows her. I guess he just must have met her while she was being held by the Kazon. Yeah, again, it's one of those those loopholes where you don't really understand. It's not really explained very well. Um, no. Again, a, a sort of a desert um, planet with a, a race of, of creatures who live on this planet but have spaceships but yet the character's still held captive on the one planet they have with no water. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's no. it's this sort of, they're, they're trying to do something a bit Mad Maxi, a bit sort of out there in terms of the planet, and it doesn't really work into the plot lines. But again, it's the pilot episode, we can sort of forgive it. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think the thing for me is that Neelix and Kez seem very close very quickly, yeah. and th- there must have been something there that we've obviously missed, and it's not entirely clear what Kez thinks of Neelix at this point, but it's very clear what Neelix thinks of uh, of Kez um, and, you know, his affection towards her. So that's kind of interesting. It's nice that we have these two alien characters and I think the fact that they know each other from at some point in, in the in the past, um, you know, they're not completely strangers to each other that are coming aboard the ship. Um, you know, it's kind of nice to have those two come, come on. They've got this pre-existing relationship that, you know, they wouldn't have had with the others, which is good. Um, yeah, so we've got those. Uh, so then basically Kez helps the crew to get underground to uh, find her people and therefore find Harry and um, so find Harry Balana. and Balana yeah, um, yeah. Um, and then yeah it's the, the majority of the rest of the episode is, is that really is them kind of going underground uh, trying to find them uh, their escape you know all of that kind of stuff and there's a lot of tension there's a lot of uh, a lot of tension and, um, and and intrigue as well because there's so much going on yeah um, you know the whole underground city thing um you know what what happened there why have they been driven underground why is the caretaker giving them power uh why is he increasing the amount of power that he's giving them because it's kind of revealed that he's uh he's given them enough power now to to uh, support themselves for five years um and then just as they're kind of escaping it's uh you know the, the caretaker starts to bombard the planet and he's basically trying to um close off he's closing off yeah. that so he's closing off the 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 receptor that was kind of taking the power that you know in these bursts that he was shooting from the uh from the outpost um so yeah and and that kind of obviously causes a lot of uh, tension the fact that it makes it very difficult for the crew to escape um and uh, and chakotay nearly doesn't um and breaks his leg and uh, it's actually paris who you know they're not they're not the greatest of friends they're in fact i think they're enemies at they this are, point yeah. um uh you know i think uh Paris's reputation and the fact that you know what he's done and the fact that also he was captured um, being part of the Marquis. Yeah, Shikoti uh, yeah. doesn't trust him. Shikoti thinks he's a, he's a mercenary who's working for the highest bidder, as it were, when he joined the Marquis. Other than rather than himself, yeah. who, of course, he joined the Marquis for for purely um, uh, reasons to defend his own people. But yeah, um, Paris actually ends up saving Shikoti from. Uh, being killed um, and gets him back alive and um, you know Balana and uh, Harry are very quickly cured of the illness that they they were given uh, that they have once they get back the EMH the doctor manages to basically just you know 
what he usually does, which is kind of swipe over his tricorder or his uh, medical injector and that's it done healed uh Chakotay's leg as well completely fine um so the wonders of uh of 24th century technology Indeed. um and that's uh, and that kind of brings us to the kind of the, the closing of the episode which is really you know where the concept of voyager begins really which is they've got their crew they want to go home so they have to go back to the caretaker in order to to to, to achieve that um but I think it's before this. It's, it's in fact when they're underground. Tuvok kind of has a, a posits a theory as to what the caretaker is doing and why he's doing it. Um, and Tuvok's theory is that in fact the caretaker is dying, and um, he has been looking after this civilization for what uh, you know according to the you know according to the Acompans, the, the Campans, Acompans, um He's been taking care of them for at least a millennia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so. Yeah, he, he's done something. You know, Tuvok's theory is that he's done something, um, and uh, you know he, the reason he's taking care of them is potentially that he's the he's the reason that the planet has become a desert, yes. and therefore he feels a responsibility to them, um, which proves to be correct when they go and meet the the caretaker, um, and this is where yeah where it all kind of kicks off, I suppose. Yes, yeah, it's, it's when it's when the the. The the end basically basically the end of the of the episode is the fact that the caretaker is dying, mm. um, which is a not a revelation as such because I think people were gathering that early on. Two actually did tint it as well, um, but he was mm-hmm. he was dying obviously, and then it becomes a whole big thing because of the fact he's dying. Um, the Voyager crew don't want the Kazon, who are now in their massive spaceships and not on a desert planet looking for water, um, to take over the array. And then that is, becomes mm. the the central uh, momentary decision that Jamie has to make, or well, not momentary, but the decision Jamie has to make that will then actually lead to the next seven years of Voyager, which of course is mm. whether to destroy the array or whether to allow it to potentially fall into the hands of uh, the Kazon. And the reason being, you know, if they if they kept the array intact, they could have got home. You know, they yeah. they could have sent themselves home. Uh, Tuvok, I think, said, given a couple of hours, he could. Um, you know, make the necessary arrangements and the calculations and stuff to get it done. Um, but the problem being that Kazan were right on top of them, and uh, you know, if they had left, there'd been the self-destruct sequence. I think there was an issue where he'd set the caretaker had set a self-destruct sequence, um, but a Kazan ship kind of careers into uh, the array and uh, basically stops that from being able to trigger. So Jamie has to make the decision of either to get home and leave the array to the Kazon or destroy the array um, and make their own way home. Um, so it's, a, it's definitely it's a, it's a, it's a horrible decision to have to make you know, when you're responsible for quite a number of people and knowing that they won't be able to get home for... I think that the calculation they made at the time 70. was 75 years. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think it's it's interesting. I think it's there's a... Um, I'm going to touch upon an episode very, very late on in the series, um, an episode which is one of my favourites, an episode where um, Seven of Nine um, starts to having conspiracy theories about the Voyager and how the Voyager was um, was in the, the Delta Quadrant. And it's touched upon there, which is quite interesting because it was the first time where Star Trek sort of touched upon some of the fan complaints. So message boards online um, had has been full of Trekkers for many, many years, and very early on it was obvious that some Trekkers were saying, well, actually... Why did they just not set a, a, a torpedo to detonate in a certain amount of time? You know, the, the ship is clearly mm-hmm. able of doing that. 
So there is a there is quite a large conceit in terms of how they get around why they've got to destroy the array for, which is then touched upon in the series later on as a sort of tongue in cheek um, conspiracy theory, which is quite funny. But mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing. I think you look if you look at it too deeply, you will start going, well, actually, that makes no sense. But it does yeah. bring up um, an interesting point in terms of the fact that you've got a moral question at the very heart of of, an, of a series of Star Trek right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of the fact that they're only in the Delta Quadrant because of a decision that they've made. They could have quite happily gone home to the Alpha Quadrant. Um, there's mm. no reason they could not. But because they made that decision, because they made that decision to help another species out, the Acompa, mm-hmm. then it's it's very odd. It's very it's a very interesting way of starting a series off in terms of the fact that you've made a small decision, um, and that you've yeah. you've got this moral dilemma right at the start and right at the heart of a, of a series is very unlike the other series where they were very much sort of you know, DS9 all it became quite philosophical as the years went on at the beginning it was quite it's a political thing more than a philosophical thing next generation wasn't that at all um, mm-hmm. Enterprise was all about faith of the heart um, and really it was just about um, it was a really interesting way of starting it but I think it was a little bit of a um if I can be as bold as to say the writers maybe didn't quite know how to get a ship into the Delta Quadrant in a really, really mm-hmm. fun way, so they sort of settled for something which is a little bit little bit of a conceit. Um, yeah, you're right. There's there's different ways they could have done it, and especially even if even if they'd have stuck with the story, you know, there's there's there was obviously ways that they could have gone back and still helped. Um yes. but as it was, it it set up kind of you know, it, it ended up it was Janeway's decision at the end of the day. You know, this is the one time that kind of Balana, um, her anger was kind of righteous. You know, it was it was a correct kind of time to have her, you know, her anger portrayed, which is, you know, why why are you making the decision for all of us? Um, you know, why do you get to make that decision? Um, and I think it's Chakotay who says it's because she's the captain. Yeah. Um, and it all rests on her shoulders. And I think that becomes a very central uh, theme is that you know she is responsible for all these people she's got to get them home and uh, that's kind of at the center of everything that she thinks about and everything she does um and not only that but it it does not not completely but it kind of throws out a lot of starfleet's directives because as Tuvok points out um them destroying the array is technically against um starfleet directive the first the first, the prime directive yes. in fact yeah. So, you know, it, it, it kind of starts off on that footing that it's not going to be um, your regular Star Trek and it's, you know, it's going to be something a little bit different. They're, they're going to be breaking the rules probably a bit more often than you used to in, in a Star Trek show, yeah. um, which is kind of definitely very interesting. It is. It's Again, it's the, the philosophical bent of Star Trek, which I know that in recent years people have uh, seemed to be complaining that Star Trek's been political. Star Trek's always been political. And this is another example mm, of yeah. how Star Trek has made that quite serious moral choice of you know the the good of the the many outweigh the need of the good of the few which is basically what this entire premise is you know the the very end of the episode they've made the decision they've kind of destroyed the array um and it's uh, you know they've got to start their 75 year journey home um and this is kind of where the the, the kind of disparate people who've they've come across the you know the, the people from the marquee um the uh you know You've got Neelix, you've got Kez, uh, you've got Tom Paris, who was up, up until that point just an observer. Um, and, and Janeway kind of brings them all on board as, as members of the crew. 
um, it, to some degree. Um, so obviously, you know, Chakotay becomes her uh, first officer. Um, so you don't get told what Balana's position is going to be, I don't think, in the pilot, but no. she, she does get made the chief of engineering. Um, I don't know if that happens later next or if episode. that's just that they don't next mention episode, it. Does. Yeah. Um, Tom gets made um, the lieutenant um, in charge of Khan. Um, And then what made me laugh uh, towards the end is the fact that um, kind of Neelix and Kez come in, kind of bounding in and, uh, you know, Janeway's ready to send them off on their ship with all the water they could ever want. Um, But they they opt to stay. They they kind of want to stay. And Neelix gives a a bit of a speech about how he's basically everything that they could want in the Delta Quadrant. He can be there guide there you know he can find them supplies he can be their cook um kez doesn't actually say what she's gonna do no. but neelix is very clear no. about what he wants to do um so yeah it's quite interesting they just kind yeah. of invite themselves along for the ride basically the very last quote um which is i think is one that janeway uses quite often through the show uh is uh, set a course for home um, which I'm pretty sure the majority, especially in the first few seasons, the majority of the episodes kind of end with her uh, saying those words yeah. uh, as they kind of continue on from whatever they're doing. Um, as, they, as, they, as they meet the Ks on again. <laughs> yes, that's right. The ones that, that, that continually pop up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's very, it's very, uh, very, very nice ending, I thought. Uh, yeah, the yeah. fact that, you know, all, all this stuff had happened, but they all come together at the end. Um, all one big crew, and they're all on their, all on their way to wherever they're going to yep. head to to be able to get home. Yeah, it's a good. End. It's a good ending. I think as well, it's it's, it's an interesting. Yeah. It shows the conflict which will happen in the crew. It will show the fact that there's different crews working together. Um, it will show the, mm-hmm. the fact that there is actually a um, a bit more bite to the story than just literally everyone following Janeway's orders. It's actually going to be a little bit more complicated than that, which is um, the first a first for a Star Trek show, really. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, yeah, it's, for me, as I think as I mentioned towards the uh, the start of what we were talking about, as a pilot episode, it wasn't just a good pilot episode to me, it was actually a, a good episode, you know, despite the issues that we've kind of come across as we've discussed it, it's got, it kind of had that, um, had a really good flow about it, yeah. you know, the, it built up the relationships of people, but it also had a lot of, um, you know, that you were quite intrigued about what was going on, and it was very good at kind of... Um, it, it told the whole story in and of itself, but left things open for the future. So, you know, if that was the pilot, if, we, if we'd have only ever seen the pilot of Voyager as a complete story, it was quite nice. Yes. It, it would make a good mini movie. I think it's basically the the point of the, the, the show. It's it's one of those episodes where yes. it doesn't need. Well, it, it sets stuff up for a sequel, obviously, but it would be the kind of yes. it would be the kind of thing which would set you up as a nice as a as a start, as a middle, as a finish. I think that's basically what we're yes. Say. Yes. Absolutely, they have uh, they have a, a great arc, um, you know, and 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 luckily for us, it just gets better as uh, we continue through the show. Um, so I guess that kind of brings us to the end. Um, what we're going to try and do for each each episode is um, just maybe a favourite quote, um, if we have one. Maybe in some episodes we won't. It's not always going to happen. Um, and also our favourite performance of the episode. Um, and then we're going to rate them. Um, so we'll do the quote and the uh, and the performance first, and then we'll kind of go on to rating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, well, I've already said one quote, which is set a course for home, which I think is, uh, I think it's the, it's the, it is the most memorable quote of the whole episode because yeah. it's then kind of used so often going forward. It is, yeah. Um, and it's certainly a really good. I mean, I wrote down a few when I was watching. I wrote down a few that were that were maybe a little bit funny or um, you know 
kind of piqued my uh, my interest. But that one in particular, I think for me is is yeah, it's the it's the quote of the episode because it's uh, it, it sums up what what the, the premise, show is about yeah. and what they're there for. Yeah. For for me, the the quote actually, as I've been thinking, as I've been listening to the uh, as I've been doing the podcast, I've actually found out my, my favorite quote, which is uh, Neelix when he says to to two rock Mr. Vulcan. Um, I find that quote I find that quote quite funny. Um, so just, <laughs> it's an off offhand thing. It's sort of done as a sort of comic sort of moment, but it's um, it becomes a bit of a touching sort of thing as the series goes on. So they have quite a, a nice friendship, don't they? As it as it continues, yes, the two yeah, of them as do, well, yeah. which is. Um, Lovely. Um, so, performance-wise, then, who do you think gave the best performance in the in the pilot episode? Um, I think it's a difficult one. I think it's it's a very early episode. I think Janeway is the only character who has hmm. probably the full story arc. Um, so, for me, Janeway, I think Kate Mulgrew was, was hmm. the best performance of the episode. Yeah, I'd agree. I think you know, like you said, it is it's difficult with just one episode uh, in terms of character development. But yeah, she had the most full. Uh, development in that kind of sense but I was surprised at how much um, I enjoyed the performances of Paris and um, and even Kez um, who are characters that I don't recall very well for their great performances later on and and also Chakotay Mm -hmm. who is famously um, not great in performances later on um, was was very convincing and very and very good but it was only in parts um, and I think yeah Janeway is definitely the most memorable performance out of out of everybody i believe all right well that brings us to the rating um so we're going to do um a a scoring system which is um it's out of four um however we're not going to do it in numbers because you know that's what everybody does and we're a star trek uh podcast and we're also specifically we're a voyager uh podcast so what is more voyager than coffee um, it is, of course, um, it's, well, it's what our podcast is named after, is the quote, uh, there's coffee in that nebula, um, is Janeway's favourite drink, um, and it's mentioned a lot in Star Trek. Uh, she she can't get enough of the stuff. So I thought, yeah, we thought we'd rate the episodes uh, by strength of coffee. Um, so there are four different strengths that we have here, and uh, those are weak, uh, bland, uh, regular... Uh, or strong, uh, and you can kind of guess what those are gonna are gonna be. It's a, it's a you know it's a one to four rating system. So weak being the worst possible, and strong uh, being the best the best episode, or you know one of among the best episodes. Um, so Mike, mm. where would you rate caretakers caretakers caretaker part one and two? I think for me it's it's a regular. Um, it's mm. it's not got the uh, the high level sci-fi. Which I like. It hasn't got the sort of um, the great character um, performances that better episodes in the series do have. So for me, it's a normal, mm-hmm. uh, regular. Sorry. However, I would say that it's a, in terms of just being a pilot, if we're just looking at it as being mm-hmm. a pilot, it's a strong pilot. Be interesting, maybe at some point to rate all the pilots of Star mm. Trek. Um, to see how that kind of fits in but yeah I, i'd agree in that you know it's we've kind of pointed out that there's plenty of flaws and there's plenty of things that they could have done better or picked up on or you know done differently so it's definitely a a regular uh, rating for me as well but same as you as in terms of pilots uh, and not just for star trek actually for a, you know looking at pilots across these kind of shows um it's it's a it's a great pilot for a for a tv show of its yeah. time um 
and and watching it in now in 2020 you know it's uh, voyager is i think i've watched probably twice through before this so when it originally aired and i think i watched it again a number of years later uh, but i haven't watched it for a, a, probably a decade mm. now um so watching it again fresh it's kind of fresh um yeah it definitely it, it definitely stood out as being a very good pilot to me even, even now it stands out as being a very good yeah. pilot um yeah so that's good so we've got our first rating in um obviously listeners let us know where you would rank this as well so that's kind of that's kind of it we've kind of rated it we've uh, we've kind of talked through it possibly in more depth than i anticipated we would um we'll kind of work out how we're going to do this because we are going to talk about two episodes each time going mm-hmm. forward so that's kind of you know th- this is kind of one story so it's uh, easy to get caught up in an hour and a half's worth of story uh, and kind of go through it in this way uh, but we're gonna have to maybe be a bit more succinct <laughs> when we go to two episodes in one podcast in yep. the future i suppose but we'll figure it out we'll figure it out it's the first time we're doing this um but yeah that's us um that has been caretaker part one and two um if you want to find us um, and kind of comment, let us know what you thought about the episodes, rank the episodes, whatever you want to do. We are on Twitter at Tapit Nebula, T-A-P-I-T Nebula. Um, so you can find us there. Anything else that you want to kind of add? No, no, I'm I'm, I'm good. I think uh, anyone wants any comments about the next episodes we're watching or any favourite episodes coming up or anything you want us to cover or questions you want to ask us to to answer or some points that uh, to raise uh, feel free to drop us a line and we will uh, bring up in the next episode so that's it thank you very much for joining us and um, if you obviously were watching along as well uh, thanks for watching the episodes and then taking the time to listen to us afterwards um, and uh, we will see you next time bye bye Mr. Paris set a course for home. Aye, Captain.